Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Darren Mitchell here and another very special day because I've got another very special guest on the podcast, Mr. Douglas Cole, all the way from Canada. Welcome to the podcast today, my friend. Thank you so much. Nice to see you, Darren. Now, I said um, it's uh, we're, we're recording this on a... Uh, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in Melbourne in Australia and it's uh, 9 a.m. at the moment and you were saying, I think, it's 7 p.m. in Canada. That's right, Yeah. I'm not sure about you, but the the wonders of technology and how how the world now is a lot smaller to the point where we can just get on a Zoom call and have a conversation mm. on the other side of the other side of the world. And by the way, I've just noticed I think we're wearing very similar color shirts, mate. Yeah, I think yours is, yours is, yours is a little bit odd. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good thing I got the virtual background to to uh, obscure the fact that my background is eerily similar to yours. <laughs> I've just noticed life. that. Oh my god. <laughs> We must be yeah. we must be kindred spirits or something. <laughs> so, mate, welcome to the podcast. Um, you you work at LinkedIn as a uh, as a sales leader in, in at LinkedIn, yep. but also most recently released a book called the Sales MBA, which we want to delve into today. But uh, before yep. we jump into that, just for our listeners, I'd love to get a bit of background on the Douglas Cole story. So, you know, what's without without? Oh, we've only we've only got about an hour to talk about or talk about stuff, but. <laughs> What's yeah. the um, what's the Reader's Digest version of, of your background that's led you to where you are right now? Yeah, well, I, I have a background which is mostly in consulting, and I made a shift from consulting about six or seven years ago. I got into sales, and I have been somewhat unexpectedly fascinated by the fact that sales is sort of a combination of strategy and psychology. I didn't expect to be so stimulated by it, but uh, but I have been ever since I transitioned from consulting. And, and so my career has, like many careers, evolved in a somewhat serendipitous fashion. And at the moment, I wear three career hats. So as you say, my day job is as a sales leader at LinkedIn, which means I lead a team of sales professionals who are trying to grow our commercial relationships with large enterprise customers. And then I have a second career hat, which is around working with startups. I, I'm working with a couple of accelerators to, to, to coach and mentor founders who are trying to grow BDB businesses. And then the third hat is teaching. I, I, I do work with the Robin School and with the Schulich School and internally within LinkedIn, teaching leadership, teaching cut, teaching sales, teaching consulting fundamentals. So um, those are the three flywheels of my profession at this point. They all feed off each other at this point in time. And, and they sort of led ultimately to this book. <laughs> wow. So I wouldn't, uh, it, this might be a difficult question or it might be a, uh, this, this is not a loaded question. Um, which one do you like best out <laughs> the three? Because it seems they all fit together. But is there one that um, is there one that really that really lights you fire more than more than something else? Well, I think in some ways you could argue that the 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 core competency for all three is teaching. Hmm. So even though I've differentiated teaching and startup coaching and sales leadership, I do believe that the teaching competency, in essence, is what underlies all three of these. And what I mean by that is I'm. I guess if there's one thing that moves me more than anything else, it's the idea of learning information in order to absorb and synthesize and distill it for the benefit of other people. So, so that I can communicate it 
in a valuable way to other people. That that is the the core intellectual activity that I find most interesting, and yeah. it's involved in all three. Although it's most explicitly involved in, in the the teaching stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, and I guess yeah. from a consultancy background, that's exactly what great consultants do: is they take the complex and and try to uh, articulate it in a way that resonates with an ideal purchaser to um, to right. make a decision to move forward. So yeah. I'm really curious in terms of the consulting background. And was there a was there a, an event that led you to sales, or was it just something that evolved over time that um, the work you were doing in the consultancy space kind of treaded a path towards uh, moving into a sales sort of sort of role? Yeah, I would say that there was a combination of push and pull factors, which generally explains most significant career transitions. And so the the push factor was that within the consulting realm, I realized at a certain point that I either had to put on the golden handcuffs and commit myself to a partner track, uh, which was being very explicitly offered at the time, or I had to do something else. And I, when I was evaluating the, the prospect of putting on those handcuffs and looking up into the future at the people who were already wearing them, I concluded that I did not envy their, their lives. I did not envy them. So I thought it's probably not the right thing for me. And so that was a push factor. And then in terms of the pull factor, one of the things that hit me around that time was in my ongoing quest for knowledge and self-improvement, I realized that there was this one conspicuous hole in my knowledge, and that was sales. That I, mm -hmm. And this was despite the fact that I had been through an MBA program and I had worked in consulting. So I'd done multiple consulting projects. I had been through a comprehensive business school education. And at no point had anyone thought that I needed to understand sales. And I, I thought that was quite a striking omission because as I reflected on my, at this time, I was going through some really deep reflections on career. And I realized that one of the most important variables, in fact, in fact, probably the most important variable for career satisfaction is the growth rate of the company. When, you, when you're with a company that is growing fast, hmm. it just tends to lead to a lot more stimulation and opportunities for experimentation and growth. Yeah. And, and I realized that while that was true, I didn't understand the, the, what was behind that. I, I didn't I didn't understand the function that drove that growth. And so that's when I determined that I would get into sales to to learn it as a practitioner and as a leader. And that was that was one of the key pull factors. It's interesting you say that um, going through an MBA and my background of 20 plus years in sales and sales leadership as well. And you talk to people coming through university now, they don't teach sales in, I mean, there's, there's now some institutions that are starting to have elements of sales, but it never really got taught as a professional discipline. And mm -hmm. I'll be curious to know, and it probably is ubiquitous across the whole world. When people look at sales and sales people, they have a very specific idea in their mind as to what a salesperson looks like and how they have to behave, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to know from you making the transition from consultant into sales, knowing that going through an MBA program, you never really got taught the element or the psychology of sales or the professionalism of sales. Was there a was there a, a difficult transition that you found, or was it something that you embraced and was it easier based on your, I guess, background in consultancy? Well, it was very hard at first making the transition. And I was quite surprised by this because I had thought, I'd been trained to think that consulting was for you know pointy-headed, smart, brainy types, and that sales would be comparatively easier uh, as a thing to transition to. What I realized is that it is incredibly difficult because it's just a totally different set of challenges, but they're no less demanding intellectually, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, that what I 
I remember this distinct sensation when I first came into sales and I was trying it out as a practitioner. I remember this, this, this really powerful feeling of overwhelm that I was trying to manage my book of business, which was around 20, 25 accounts or something. And then at each of those accounts, there were minimally five people of consequence in, in the buying committee. And so I, I realized that I was, I was having to hold in my head all the variables associated with what was happening at those companies and then all the variables associated with what was happening with those people and the interconnections among them. And I realized it was, it was completely overwhelming me and I had no real way of staying on top of this. And I just remember feeling distinctly incompetent uh, really quickly on in, 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 into this new career. And I realized that there, I needed to build a whole new set of muscles, professional muscles. And in time, what I realized was that many of the things that I had been taught in the consulting realm were actually quite valuable to in, in the sales space. Um, but there was a, a different dimension uh, of just understanding this. As I said, you know, it's, it is a strategic field. Sales is very strategic, but it's also based on psychology. It's being able to manage people and, you know, really complex array of people. I would say that really the, the most comp, the, the, the root competencies of sales are, are strategy, psychology, and project management. You just, you have to be good at, at those three things. And, and I had to learn how to manage sales projects. And I had to learn how to manage people in a sales context, which is very different from consulting context, because mm. as a consultant, when you're talking to a client, they're paying you to be there. There's a really noticeable neon dollar sign above your head the whole time. And yeah. so you are constantly looking to add value that, that sort of informs every step you take at, at, at the client's site. Yeah. In a sales context, it's it's not like that. You, you have to you have to uncover the value. You have to seek it out and and make it make the invisible visible to the client. And and so it's a totally different way of working with clients. Um, but um, some of the consulting skills can apply. Just they need to be reframed in a sense. <laughs> That's right. And, and I like what you said that um, it's psychology and it's project management, but it's also strategy. And mm. if I think back on my sales career and certainly running sales teams, uh, the ones who were successful had mm. high levels of competency in each of those three mm. areas. Um, mm. I'm really, I'm really curious that is there or was there a, a point in time? Because obviously this has evolved and, and you've done an MBA, you're teaching, and I'm sure part of your teaching and lecturing now is talking a lot about sales and blending, if you like, the consultancy aspect with the strategy of sales required to be successful. Um, was, there a, was there a certain moment or a certain situation that became, I guess, the catalyst that led you forward to write the sales MBA? Or was it something that just evolved and you thought, you know what? I think we need to integrate some of these teachings into like a sales curriculum. Was there an event that said the world needs this book or was there something mm. different? Yeah. It, um, I remember someone advising one time when I was talking about writing a book, not this book, but a different book. And, so, and someone, someone said to me, well, you should only write a book if it's more painful not to write a book than to write a book, because you need to understand that if you're going to commit to that project of writing a book, it is going to be absurdly demanding and you're, you're going to be making all kinds of sacrifices. So unless it's more painful not to do that, don't bother uh, undertaking the journey. So that, um, that came to mind in the course of deciding to write this book because it actually came, I, did, I do remember realizing one day that I, I just had to write this book. I, I didn't have any option in a sense. It was more painful not to do it. And that's just because 
after a certain period of time, what had happened was when I joined LinkedIn, as I, as I mentioned, I had this consulting background. And initially, I was sort of wondering whether I'd made the right decision. I, I was beginning to question my wisdom, actually, as to you know, why I had joined this field of sales and joined this company. And and I because I didn't, I just felt like a fish out of water. I was hard for me to talk to many of my colleagues, and I wasn't yeah. getting some of the aspects of the job. And And then I just sort of had this come to Jesus moment where I thought to myself, listen, man, you, you can't, you can't just sit here blaming the world and feeling sorry for yourself, you just need to find some way to be useful to this community. You've got a lot of experience and, and you've also observed that many people here don't have the same experience. Surely yeah. there are some valuable components of that experience that you can share with your colleagues. And so I just, at that point, decided that I was going to try to do something of value to the community. And so I started to build this mini MBA for sales for the global sales team. And it took a while. It took about three years. I initially built the strategy module and the change module and then the behavioral economics module. And by the time I got to toward the end of the third module, that's when I had that realization. I thought, I mean, I, I really need to put this in book form. It's, it's been, I've been getting a lot of feedback from people in live sessions and, you know, now is the time to try to codify that. So that, that was the the point of no return. (laughs) So it's like an evolutionary process, rather revolutionary process. I, nice. I, I think that's the way it should happen. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And so let's let's talk about the. I've I've read part of the. As I said before, I've read about half of the book, and um, it's only because yeah. I just had <laughs> time to read it all. Sure. Well, but yeah. I have. But I have. Um, I have behind you. I can see why that there are distractions that are keeping you from the from, from reading it. <laughs> Mate, there are there are a few books that I haven't got to, but that's just an excuse. Um, because I do say that you know, success, successful people are always readers, and readers are leaders, and leaders are readers. But um. Yeah, I'm trying to read too many books at once. However, I digress. I have I have read parts of the book, but I've also um, done a bit of an overview of of the of the thesis of the of the book as well. And it's really um, it's really impressive. It's really impressive, and I think it's a book that every salesperson, and particularly every sales leader, should get a hand hand on to really uh, deep dive and, and double down on what are some of the key aspects of successful selling, particularly in the government and enterprise space in the corporate space. And so there are three three key sections of your book. One is becoming a strategist. Second one is becoming a, a change agent and then becoming a decision architect. So if we can talk about those three separately, um, if we think about the, the strategist, and you touched on it before that great salespeople need to be great strategists mm-hmm. and good at strategy development. Um, if there was an overarching, I guess, clear message around becoming a strategist what's what's the clear message there what why why because there'll be people listening today that are either sales leaders struggling to get their team to make their sales targets and then there are others that are knocking out of the ballpark why do they need to be because some of them are thinking i don't need to be a strategist i've got customers that are that have just a commodity bias why do i need to be a strategist mm-hmm. what would you say to those people well you're always going to have those people who believe that they have sort of figured out their own unique formula. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't intend to speak to every single salesperson. Uh, mm. I, I, I believe that part of strategy, in fact, <laughs> is to understand who your target buyer is and to be very clear on who your target buyer is. So applying those principles to, to my approach to this book, I do have a certain reader in mind. I, I have a reader in mind who is committed to constantly refining the craft of selling as 
within a, an enterprise space, especially. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm talking to the person who is an autodidact, you know, someone who's a self-motivated learner who is looking to deepen and to widen his or her knowledge base in order to become a more lethal weapon as a as a sales professional. And and so I think that if if that is your bent, if, if that's if that's your approach to professional development and learning, this book has something to, to say because I think that my experience from watching salespeople evolve and seeing them progress uh, along a fairly predictable trajectory, what I've seen is that the ones who, who are the best, they go through these three levels uh, of mindset progression. When they first start their careers, they are uh, fundamentally uncomfortable at the fact that they're trying to get a busy stranger to pay attention to them. And so they they try to deal with that discomfort by being as likable and as charming as possible. So that's the likability stage of the, yeah. you know, the neophyte seller. Then they graduate to this next level where they become, they, be, they accept that they have a self-interested mandate. They also accept the client has certain concerns. And so they try to engineer a win-win outcome and they're, they become preoccupied with mutuality, you know, satisfying two different interests. But the ones who are really good at this stuff, the ones who truly master the craft are somehow able to, to show up uh, at the client's uh, uh, conference room in a sense and, and to be presented as, or to be positioned as a trusted advisor and be seen as a trusted advisor in, because they have a plausible objective perspective on the client situation. Mm. Uh, and that's very, very hard to achieve. It's very hard for a seller, despite the fact that they're carrying a quota, is actually seen as a trusted advisor. Everyone uses that term. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a, <laughs> that's the throw right, I want, it, isn't it? it's a problem of our industry at this point, but very few people actually uh, attain that, that status of, of trusted advisor. And what I'm trying to argue in the book is that to, to, to be that, to be a trusted advisor, you do need to be able to bring an objective point of view on what's happening in this sales conversation. Mm -hmm. And my argument is that any B2B sales conversation, especially, is fundamentally an interplay between three different realms. You have these external factors of you know, how the company that client organization is competing against its competitors in the market. And you have these organizational factors, you know, who are the leading voices that are setting the pace and the tone within that company, mm. or the dominant themes. And then you have this interpersonal dimension, the, 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 the particular nuances uh, of that individual, uh, psychologically speaking, you're, you're dealing with. And, um, and a really good salesperson is able to switch context shift and switch between these filters, depending on what the situation demands. But the strategy piece to go back to your question, the strategy piece is, is, is knowing how to speak the language that resonates with executives in a firm. Because executives are the ones are, who are going to sign big checks. If you want to sell mm -hmm. a big deal, you need to be able to connect with an executive. And, and strategy is the language of the executive ranks. That, that is the language that defines the allocation of people and resources. Yeah. And so to be, to, to be conversant in that language, I would argue, is, is incumbent upon somebody who's going to be top of their game. And there's lots of, um, I like at the end of each chapter, you talk about um, that particular strategy in action. And mm -hmm. there was a story of the strategist that, and you gave, you gave two distinct uh, differences. One of a, um, actually it might have been before that, one of an example of a, a normal salesperson going into an executive and talking about the benefits and the features of a particular product. Mm. Mm -hmm. And thinking that that would actually entice the customer to lean in and actually fall over themselves to want to purchase that, mm -hmm. that service. 
mm-hmm. then did the same thing, but from the perspective of a true strategist mm-hmm. who was looking at what was the problem that their client was trying to solve and who was their client's client and how do we right. actually put the language in a, in a way that resonates with them. Knowing that, and this is the psychology that I, I get, knowing that the customer probably didn't want the product or the service that I had to sell. What they wanted was a solution to a problem they needed to solve. Yeah. And so putting, putting that into perspective of understanding, well, where does my client compete and how they're going to win, but also who, who are they trying to solve problems for, all of a sudden from a strategist changes the way that they think and therefore how they resonate with an executive. Because if you think mm. about how many, and you might have found this when you first came in or before you got into sales, a lot of people look at salespeople as the pushy, uh, yes, they're carrying quotas and therefore because they're carrying quotas, there must be some level of pressure that's on them to, to sell a service or to try and fit that square peg into a round hole. Mm. But it's the salespeople, and this is what I got out of the strategy piece, it's the salesperson that can take a step back from that and say, is there a problem that needs to be solved? What are some of the key things that this client is looking to solve and how can I potentially help provide a solution to that? And it's a completely different uh, piece of psychology, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it goes back, as you say, to this issue of, of strategy and, and psychology. I mean, strategy is, you know, I talk a little about in, in, this in the book. I mean, strategy is an interesting term. It's become this very nebula, nebulous term, you know, not unlike the, the, the term trusted advisor. You know, it, it's uh, people will, will attach the label strategy or strategic to an otherwise ordinary business initiative just to give it some gravitas and weight. And, and we've sort of lost touch with what a strategy is. And now there's a lot of theoretical literature on strategy. And my, my objective in this book, you know, in my capacity as someone who likes to teach is to try to boil a whole bunch of complex literature down to a few actionable insights. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, when you think about the key question for me as someone who's trying to get a message across is how do I really simplify this? You know, how do I do justice to the to the realm of strategy while at the same time making it so simple that someone who has no interest in going through those bookshelves uh, can, can do something with the information? So the way I've tried to uh, do that in this particular case is I basically said one simple way to think about the the strategic angle when you're trying to service a client is to empathize with the end customer you know mm-hmm. and so you so typically it's not just empathizing with your client uh, at at this client organization but with the with that company's target buyer when you sort of put yourself in the shoes of the person they are trying to persuade, the person they're trying to sell their product or service to, how does that person see the world? How does that person see this company that you're selling to? How does it yeah. see them in comparison to other companies that he or she may buy from? So that that perspective is a totally different shift. You could almost think of B2B sales as being not so much B2B, B2B to B uh, yeah. because it's it's business to business buyer, right? It's, it's, it's trying to find out who's that target buyer because that person's perspective gives you a sense of where they're going to, where, where this client is playing in the market yeah. and how they can win in that market. And that's, that's the essence of a strategic perspective. And of course, with that, all of a sudden, if, if a person who's a salesperson can get that mind, mind shift um, done and start to see that, all of a sudden they're going to differentiate themselves against most of the competition and through that process become a trusted advisor because 
there's going to be all of a sudden no, no longer a product push. It's now going to be a solution provided based on the understanding of what their client is trying to solve in the marketplace. And right. I'm not going to give away the, the six principles you talk about in terms of the value client value proposition because people mm. have to go and buy the book to get that. But um, <laughs> I think you articulate that pretty well because there's certain elements in that 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 forces the salesperson, if they want to become a strategist, to think differently than perhaps they have in the past. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if you think about it, um, from a from an executive point of view, looking at all the different uh, providers out there, it's it's almost like a sea of sameness, right? So from a from a seller's point of view, what's going to make me different than my yeah. competitors, right? And right. what we're talking about here is uh, if you think about B two B two B, then all of a sudden you can differentiate yourself because most people are not doing that. Yeah, and th- this is one of these. Uh, permanent truths about sales you know um what you'll find is that the people who do really well at sales are are doing things that most other sellers don't want to do because they either they're because they're either maybe not interested in putting in that much amount of work or they somehow view themselves incapable of doing it so whether you're talking about something as basic as just having a regular prospecting system that allows you to constantly build pipeline, which most people don't do because it's just painful to, to experience mm-hmm. serial rejection, um, or whether you're talking about a higher end skill, such as what we're talking about, this, this also requires work. It requires work to understand who that target buyer is and how that customer see, how that buyer sees the world. It's not easy to do this and, and, it's, and it's not typical to do it. But if you do do this, then yes, you, you will be perceived fundamentally different by, by the client. I guess a part of that also has to be having a level of um, tenacity and resilience because there's always going to be that pressure of the target hanging over your shoulders. And it's very easy for a lot of salespeople to have their focus turn from the long-term strategic approach, which will give you know big, big returns to the mm. short term, I've got to hit my monthly quota. Otherwise, my boss is going to be reaming me. <laughs> so there's this, right. there's this balancing act that, that has to be played out as well. Yeah. So that's that's the first element, being being in the strategist. You then move on to talk about becoming a change agent. And I think this is where uh, you start talking a lot more about the human behavior within organizations. Mm-hmm. What's Why is becoming a change agent, particularly in 2022 and beyond, such an important thing when it comes to selling to enterprises? Yeah, the the, I, the issue with becoming a change agent is that it's actually it starts from a very macro perspective, which is that our economy, because of technology, is becoming an increasingly distributed nodal based economy, right? So we just we're developing all these new branches of knowledge, all these new nodal connections between those branches, all these new areas of specialty, and the implications for that in terms of the way companies operate is that they cannot drive change in a top-down manner anymore. I mean, that, that's very much a thing of the past. Uh, it used to be that you know people thought about change initiatives as being these projects that, that, that would, change is a continuous process now. It's, it's happening everywhere all the time. And one of the reasons for that is that because of this informational trend that I'm describing, the whole organization becomes like a sensing network. You, know, you, you can't just rely on change initiatives to start at the top and roll their way down. Everyone in that organization has to be a kind of sensing mechanism for the external and internal world. And those sensors need to feed information back into the organization and drive change from the bottom up or from the outside in and from the top down. It's not just one directional, it's from multi-directions. And so that's that's the nature of our informational reality right now. What this means for a sales professional is that you, 
as a sales professional are one of those nodes. You are one of those change nodes in the organization. You are in a position where the information that you present to that organization, the way you frame it, you know, the way you advocate it for it, you know, the, the coalitions that you build within that company, that is going to drive change. And you need to see yourself as someone who has that kind of power to drive change in the organization. Now, the typical, uh, the typical approach to, to change and the barriers to change is from a sales perspective, well, I'm dealing with this one blocker, this person doesn't like me, this person doesn't like my brand, whatever, you know, this person's stuck in the mud and not really seeing the future as he or she needs to see it. There's, we have this tendency to villainize a couple of people who are blocking our initiatives. And what I try to argue in the change agent section is that that's not an accurate way to think about how change happens in a company. Change is not a people problem. It's a, it's a situation problem. And, and the people who are really good at driving change are good at tweaking the variables within the within the company situation in order to nudge things along. And mm -hmm. so I felt that in many respects, what this book tries to do in a lot of different areas is to bring together best in class practices and references and theory from across a, a variety of domains and just boil it down into, into some workable frameworks that, that a salesperson can use. So here I'm just, there's a lot of change literature that makes it very clear that change, uh, any large scale change, even in fact, whether it's on the level of the individual, it always has the same three pillars. There has to be a personal dimension, a social dimension, and a structural dimension. There has to be some uh, uh, key, key personal interest that I'm tapping into. There needs to be a sense in which I'm taking cues from my social network in order to change my behavior. And there needs to be structural elements in the sense that my environment needs to be supportive of whatever change I'm trying to make. And so I break down those three points into a couple of sub points. So that they're really, it's sort of a six part framework and talk about how that's, that's a way to think about how you can work with a situation in order to drive change on the client side. I noticed also you mentioned one of the, and I think you've kind of touched on this, one of the biggest barriers being present bias. What, yeah. what, Somebody listening to that for the first time, what do you mean by present bias? Is it is it somebody stuck in the present um, or just here in the here and now, not having the vision for the future? Or is it something different? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us experience this in one way or another, whether we're talking about pleasure or pain. We, we always, we discount the future, typically speaking. It, it's the, the moment looms large. And you know, whether we're talking about a, you know, the allure of, a, of an unhealthy meal or drink or something, or, you know, versus, you know, just thinking of our, our future self and how we're going to feel about it the next, the next day of month, week, whatever. Yeah, you know, we just, we have a tendency to, to bias the present over, over the future. And this is a systematic bias that humans are prone to. And, uh, and so that we're always going to be up against that. And, and so the, the, the question is, from a change perspective, how do you, how do you shrink that time gap? How do you, mm -hmm. Because what's what's generally going on with the present bias is that someone assumes that the cost of of partnering with with your firm is going to be a, a prohibitively high cost, you know, as against just continuing with whatever the present state happens to be. Yeah. And so you, so you need to find a way to to lower that barrier to to make the to diminish the friction, uh, so that it doesn't seem like such a remote future prospect that it, that it's much more present. You know, so that's 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 the essential challenge of the of the change agent. Got it, got it. I remember, and it makes sense because I remember a lot of the a lot of the challenges we had back in the day was uh, the big 
decision cost of change sort of equation that um yeah oh and and i gotta say back then building strategy it was it was still focused a lot on the benefits that we thought we could bring to the table that would we would try to incentivize mm. a customer to make the move rather than probably spending near enough time on understanding what would be the cost if they didn't change so similar to what you referred to before we started recording you know mm. the the callus for writing a book is it has to be almost more painful not to write the book that's going to force right. you to write the book. So what's going right. to force an organization to change? There's got to be a pain, more pain staying where they are as compared to moving forward. So that's, yeah. that's I guess, how you can overcome in some respects the, the present bias, but then tap into those three key areas you just talked about in terms of the social influences, the personal interest of those executives, but also the structural surroundings as well. Yeah, no, that's right. Brilliant. Now, talk to me about the decision architect. I love that. Uh, I love that title, the decision architect. It's 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 almost like there's this. Um, I don't know. There's this gravitas associated with a salesperson yeah. being known as an architect. Well, and that's that's the you know that's definitely one of the the themes of the book is, is to try to elevate the way that salespeople see themselves is to try to you know dignify the discipline of sales. Uh, so that's very much intentional. This section, becoming a decision architect, was. Uh, in some ways, the the most fun to write because it, it really does go most deeply into psychology. You can see that the book gradually progresses. It, it places more and more emphasis on psychology until when we get to this section, it really goes quite deep. And what I'm trying to do here is argue that you're know, here again, we're talking about third domain, which is the interpersonal domain. And what I'm trying to argue is that there's a lot that sales needs to understand from the area of behavioral economics. It's really directly applicable to the sales challenge. And, and so what I'm doing in this section, I was trying to, I'm trying to give a, a, a selective distillation of, of six key uh, behavioral economics principles that I think are, are quite relevant to sales. And, but the starting point for describing those six principles is a framework that actually comes from, it's slightly tweaked, but it, it essentially comes from behavioral economics. The way that behavioral economics emerged for the benefit of, of listeners who don't understand the, the history here is that um, traditional economics used to assume, it, one, of, one of its basic assumptions was that human beings make decisions for based on a rational calculation, that human beings within the economy are rational actors, and economists are making calculations and extrapolations based on the assumption that human decisions are essentially rational in nature. And yep. what happened in the 80s and 90s when, when behavioral economics just burst onto the scene was that the, the founders of that movement, Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler and Daniel Ariely and a few of these folks, they challenged that assumption dead on. They said, we, we, we flat out reject that. And we have all kinds of evidence to prove that people do not make decisions based on a rational calculation. And the behavioral economics framework for thinking about human decision-making was, was in terms of these bounds, these bounds of human cognition. They said, we can't behave as rational agents because we're essentially limited by the fact that we are limited in our attention, we're limited in our rationality, and we're limited in our self-interest. All these things mm -hmm. systematically bias our decisions in a predictable way. And, and that framework, I think, is a very useful framework to start thinking about what a salesperson does. Because if you think about the, the sales process, it is, first of all, a matter of getting somebody's attention, right? So that's mo moving within the bounds of attention. 
then it is a matter of getting a client or prospect to make an, a, to make a judgment about your product or service. And that is moving within the bounds of rationality. And then third, it's, it's getting a client to take action, which is essentially moving within the bounds of self-interest. So when you're thinking about how to get someone's attention, how to, how to, how to form their judgment and how to spur action, you are working within these bounds that behavioral economics has well-defined. And so what I'm trying to do is present six principles that I think are very practical to help you navigate those boundaries you know, more effectively. So let's just talk about those because I've just, I've just wrote, written them down. The first one you've got is influence levers, which is within the bounds of the attention. So how can I, how can I integrate into, into communication? So when you think about influence levers, is this about mm-hmm. grabbing grabbing the attention of the buyer, knowing that there's so many, so much information available to them, it's, it gets, yeah. gets really, really noisy. So how do I yeah. just take something that, that grabs somebody's attention? Yeah. Well, this point, as with a lot of points in the book, you know, starts from the observation that our informational universe is changing in a certain way. It's just getting increasingly complicated and overwhelming. What that means is that people, the way people make judgments, the way the, the things that people will notice is increasingly crowded out, right? Our attention is increasingly crowded out. And, and we're increasingly prone to making snap judgments. We just look for shorthand cues as to whether I should pay any attention at all to this message that just came in from so-and-so. And so what I'm arguing is that influence levers, a useful framework to, to go back to, it actually comes from Robert Cialdini who predates the, the, the behavioral economics community, but he, he was identifying many of the same things in his book, Influence, which is sort of a must read for anyone in sales. I'm sure you're well familiar with it, but yeah. in that book, he talks about these, these, these seven influence levers, uh, social proof, authenticity, consistency, likability, reciprocity, scarcity and unity. He added a seventh in the last couple of years. He upgraded his work. Uh, and, um, and I think that just as a practical matter, so in the book, what I do is I, I go through uh, an example of uh, one of my former colleagues who was quite a brilliant woman. And she, she put together this prospecting email, which got an immediate response from, from a, a prospect just within seconds. And I, and I was analyzing this, this, this letter that she, or this email that she wrote. And I was noticing that it was just absolutely replete with these influence levers. It just had, it had everything. It had social proof, it had likability, it had consistency, it had authority, it had all these things in there. And they were all just sort of layered in very naturally into her communication. And that, it was so obvious, that was why she had received such an instant response. And so I think just as a practical matter, if you as a salesperson are routinely crafting high stakes communications and hoping to get people's attention, I have on my desk, just a quick checklist. The reason I, I didn't just remember all these things, I, I'm just looking at them right in front of me. I, I have these seven these seven influence levers that are just there to remind me anytime I'm writing any sort of consequential communication to you know, a senior stakeholder or you know, senior colleague or you know, anything that really matters. I want I just run through those and I say, well, how can I strengthen this message by, by, by incorporating some of those principles? So that's that's an example of 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 some of the practical tips to to work within these bounds of attention. Love it. And then you talk about the we won't go through all six, but uh, the other one I like in the bounds of attention is the peak end rule. So how could I maximize memorability and positive emotion in customer interactions? Which goes back to what we we're talking about before in terms of rationality and emotion. And mm. even though people think that many or others make decisions based on rational reasons we know for a fact that that is not the case so how can we 
I guess, invoke. This is what I'm deducing from this. How do I invoke an emotion that's going to want a customer to potentially lean forward and take some form of definitive action? Is that is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that the, the you know the foundation for that particular principle is that one of the features of a sale of a sales cycle is that it's a it's a series of conversations you know if you, if you, if you especially when you're talking about a b2b large sale you're, you're thinking about a, a series of conversations that are intended to build ideally are building momentum over time and so when you are d- approaching that interaction with a client it's important to think how am i how am i building that momentum how, how am i what is it that i want them to feel what is it that i want them to think what is it that i want them to do you know in each and every meeting and on that feeling dimension, the thing I want them to feel, I think it's worth pausing and asking yourself, what is it that I can do upfront and at the end of that meeting in order to augment positive emotion? Mm. Uh, one of the things that we often do in a LinkedIn context, for instance, it's such a simple thing, but it's uh, it's it's almost always effective. And that is if we're meeting a, a new set of particularly senior stakeholders for the first time in a meeting, one of the very first questions we'll ask as a way to just introduce everyone is just tell me something that's not on your LinkedIn profile. And, and it, and it encourages people to just sort of think about something that is not an immediately obvious part of their professional identity, but is nonetheless an important part of their identity. Yeah. And they yeah. sort of relax a little bit and it, it creates a, a lighter, deeper human connection, you know, at the start of a meeting, which is when you're, you're setting the, the tone. Nice. Nice. I love it. I often at a beginner workshop. So I, uh, I often ask people to, um, to have a conversation with each other about what is their guilty pleasure that nobody else knows about, which is, which is similar to that. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting what comes out in terms, there was one, yeah. there was one particular case where um, there was a couple of blokes talking in and one said to the other, I've, you know, my guilty pleasure is my mate and I have bought a speedboat and neither of our wives know about it. <laughs> so <laughs> was different. Not sure how they get away with that, but uh, anyway, that's but it's a but it's an interesting interesting thing because you get to you get to find more about an individual when yeah. they feel comfortable sharing something that that is not on their LinkedIn profile or something they wouldn't normally share with others. So that's well, a, that's well, yeah, I mean, so much of sales is about shaking the box, right? Just sort of shaking yeah. the frame, getting people to step outside of the the sort of tried and true and stayed professional frame that we all sort of unthinkingly step into you know, at, the, at the beginning of a call. So questions like that, when you just mentioned, are excellent for, for shaking the box. <laughs> now, the, the irrationality part, I, I really like the naming and norming. How can I use simple outcome-focused labels that travel easily within the customer's organizations? Can you tell us a bit more about that in terms of within the bounds of irrationality, naming and norming? Yeah, the principle here comes from observing the way many other realms have have made use of the same principle. So in politics, for instance, it's a good laboratory for observing this kind of thing. In politics, as you know, they, they spend millions and millions of dollars to try to shape public opinion and, and, and try to alter people's perceptions of things. And the words that are used are just amazingly effective in terms of affecting that kind of a shift. So for instance, the thing of the difference between gambling and gaming uh, or between uh, a used car versus a pre-owned vehicle uh, or, or in those are actually business examples. But in politics, uh, think of the difference between uh, a welfare policy and reducing poverty. 
right? Yeah. So these are these are all essentially the same things, but the but the words that are used to describe them ev evoke completely different emotions. And so in a sales context, I think this is really worth thinking about when you are trying to frame your 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 opportunity to a client. It often pays to pause and ask yourself, am I using the right label or frame for this thing? For instance, one of the examples that we used in the book was in a, in, in a previous engagement with a client, we used to talk about this, uh, a, a pilot initiative as a pilot, you know, you want to test before you invest. Yeah. And they weren't really warming to this, this idea of a pilot. And when we shifted the frame and we said, okay, well, it's, we started talking to a different group of stakeholders. And we said, what we're interested in, in talking to you about is not a pilot, but a champion initiative. In other words, what we were saying was we weren't really, this wasn't really about testing the solution. We had already accepted that the solution was a value. We were actually just building a core group of advocates who would be the leaders for the wider organization once they adopted it as well. So it was a very assumptive way to mm -hmm. approach the investment because we'd all, we were so confident this was valuable that we, we don't think the word pilot is necessary. It's just we're building a champion team before a larger rollout. And that that frame was 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 one that that they actually ended up adopting internally for for the for their own advocacy of the initiative. So that's just an example of of how this stuff you know can work. And it's it's, it's not a, it's not a common, but it's a, it's a I think a useful thing to remind ourselves that words and frames really matter on that level. Well, it does. And that sort of leads to the next part where the third one is the bounds of self-interest, where you've got either the role theory or the loss of version. If there's something in it for them, if they all of a sudden become, hey, I'm not I'm not part of a pilot, I am part of a champion team, all of a sudden there's an ele elevation of status almost within an organization yeah. to say, well, hey, this is in my best interest. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be wanting wanting to be part of this and um, mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna gain a lot out of this rather than lose something out of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, the whole loss dimension is surprisingly underplayed in in B two B sales. You know, a lot of times we, we will go to a client and we will talk about everything that they stand to gain, and all the all the literature in in behavioral economics points to the fact that loss is felt much more acutely than gain. And mm -hmm. so psychologically speaking, we're really averse to loss. And a lot of the the buying decisions that that, that senior stakeholders make, especially is based on a calculation of not wanting to lose their job. <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're, they're seeking to avoid some potentially negative outcome and that becomes the basis for a decision. And um, so anyway, I, I think that there's um, th this really fascinating study is there was this one story that I, that I told in the book, which comes from Daniel Kahneman. And he describes how he, he went to an executive team and he asked every one of the direct reports to the CEO. He asked them if they'd be willing to, to endorse an initiative that had a uh, a 75% chance of success and a 25% chance that they would be that that it would be that it would fail and all of them rejected this this uh, initiative uh, on the grounds that if it didn't go well there was a 25% chance they'd be fired yeah. and uh, the CEO, then these results were explained to the CEO and the CEO said he said I don't understand he said if everyone did this this initiative everyone undertook it then on a portfolio basis, we'd, we'd clearly be better off. We have a 75% chance of earning more money as a business. But from the perspective of each individual person, they didn't have a portfolio perspective. They just had an individual perspective. And you know, they right. themselves, and this is this is often the context in which a salesperson is operating, is, a, is, is they're trying to sell something which really is maybe sometimes better framed as the least risky option than you know, the most attractive and alluring option. 
And that comes back to the salesperson going right back to the strategy piece is really understanding your customer and what motivates them and what's mm-hmm. what's going to be at stake if they make a mistake within the organization. So how do we how do they how do we align our, our key stakeholders and how do we use all of the stuff you've covered in the book to maximize mm-hmm. the opportunity of getting the right solution in the right hands at the right price moving forward? Right. Exactly. Wow. So you finish off um, you finish off the book talking about the uh, convergence of, of consulting and sales. Um, yeah. I'm curious as to where why did you put that at the end of the book versus at the start of the book? Was there was there something that was that was um, that a driving force for that? Or was it you just wanted to leave a, a taste in the reader's mouth to say, you know what? When you're thinking about consultancy and selling. They're now converging more and more, especially in the enterprise space. Well, the reason I put it at the end of the book is that I, I felt that that was the time to reflect on broader implications of the model that we've been describing and going over in the book. And I felt that at that point, it was appropriate to step back and ask, how is the industry evolving and how do these concepts that we've been talking about, why are they especially relevant, you know, given the evolution of the industry? And, and so what I'm talking about at the end, and maybe it's just, this is something that I am and particularly alive to just given the fact that I came from a consulting background, mm. but it really does seem to me that the, that consulting and sales are becoming more and more alike. Again, when I go back to these underlying technology drivers and the, you know, the changes that are happening at the macro level in our economy, one of the things that's really striking is that the, 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 the rate of, of innovation is such that no vendor can assume that it, it is privileged to be the incumbent, that it, that, it, that it can rely upon its status as the incumbent. That in fact, there, there's so much competition happening all around that every vendor has to justify itself to the client. Otherwise, that client is simply going to repurpose those funds and give it to, to someone else. I think one of the consequences of that from a sales profession, from a sales perspective, is that you start to look a lot more like a consultant under those conditions. Because remember, we were talking at the outset about how a consultant is always trying to add value and yep. the salesperson yep. is trying to uncover it. Well, that I think has changed now. I think the consultant does, or the, the salesperson does have to add value. The, the salesperson does need to show, I understand your business. I understand what it's going to take for this business to win what it's going to take to advance this internal initiative, what it's going to take for you personally to be successful as a client. These are the kinds of calculations that a salesperson needs to make in order to add value now and to justify uh, their presence, because it's not just about getting to a signed contract anymore. No. It's, you know, it's, it's about, it's about maintaining your position once you have a signed contract and continuously adding value to the customer. It's a great point you made, Douglas, because often, I often say to my clients that, you know, the sale actually begins after the sale has made been made. Right. So mm-hmm. there are so many examples of salespeople being all over the customer, building great strategic relationships, getting the contract, and then all of a sudden they've handed it over to somebody to manage it moving forward, and there's just mm-hmm. crickets, right? It's yeah. the it's the salespeople who can continue to deliver that value after the contract yeah. is done that will determine you know what sort of relationships uh, and further business is going to come. So uh, I like I like the fact you've talked about this, given that um, when you think about the title of the book, the Sales MBA, it really is an MBA for salespeople, particularly in the enterprise space, to really change their thinking and challenge their own thinking in terms of, am I, am I, am I thinking more and more like a consultant? Am I thinking simply because of my target and therefore I, I have a level of self-interest? Or am I really focused on what value I can add to my customer base and what problems I'm here to solve? 
And if you can focus on that, then I always say that, you know, you, you focus on the process and you make progress against that, the numbers will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. <laughs> All right. So as we, uh, as we wrap up, um, if you've got a, if you've got a sales leader, an enterprise salesperson right now, um, and yes, we're going to say you go, need to go and buy the book. If there was one final message that you wanted to leave to um, sales leaders, but also enterprise salespeople, that is a, is a must, a must message. What would that be? Yeah, I've, I think that the, one of the statements that has stuck with me from an interview that I listened to, or maybe it was an article I read, I can't remember which, but uh, the, the famous Stephen Covey of The Seven Habits uh, once said, I remember he said, he said, if you're looking to make incremental change, focus on behavior. If you're looking to make quantum change, then focus on the mental paradigm. Uh, and I think that that is, that's really in some respects, the key message of this book is I'm, I'm trying to shift the mental paradigm for the way that a salesperson sees themselves. Because I think that if in elevating the, the definition of what they do, thinking of themselves as a strategist, change agent, decision architect, I do think that has profound implications as to how they behave on the job. And so I, I would encourage leader, leaders to ask themselves, how can they change the, 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 the paradigm for their teams by getting yeah. their, their teams to think of themselves differently? Right, and they can start by buying a book. They can start by buying the sales MBA, how to influence corporate buyers, which is a very practical first step. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. So for those who are interested in getting a hold of the book, where is the best place for them to buy it? But also where can uh, people connect with you, Douglas? Yeah, the best place to buy the book is on Amazon. That's the primary channel right now. Uh, If you do buy it and if you do like it, please write a review on Amazon. That's extremely important for, uh, for new releases. Uh, and in terms of connecting with me, the best way to do that would be two areas. One, LinkedIn. I spend quite a bit of time on LinkedIn, as you would imagine. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, well, you do work there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and second of all, I did just launch a website called the salesmba.ca. You can sign up for the newsletter there. MBA CA. Perfect. Awesome. I'll um, I'll put those in the show notes and um, I'll make sure that they're up on the various platforms as well. So Douglas, hey, really enjoyed this conversation. Congratulations on the book. Um, I'm going to read the rest of it now uh, based on this conversation. And uh, okay. it's uh, it's certainly a must read from what I've already read and from this conversation, it's certainly a must read for any salesperson who is interested and who is dedicated to making an impact in the enterprise space and looking for ways to differentiate themselves against their competitors because um, it's uh, sales is continuing to change. And what we've done leading up to now is not necessarily going to get us to move forward in a, in a way. It might right. make some incremental changes, but it's not going to be the big paradigm shift. So uh, I think your book could be the catalyst for helping a lot of people make that paradigm shift. So, Matt, I really enjoyed this conversation and um, thanks for joining us on the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you too. Awesome. Talk soon. Right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.